Excuse me. Who spilled their beer? One second. Are you okay? There we go. Whoops. Hopefully that doesn't stain the wood. Yeah, I'm sure you're fine. No, there's no finish on this. <laughs> oh. Well, now you just added some, some character. I agree. The worst case, I just need to take a sander to it. Or cover the entire thing with beer. <laughs> you know, when you're right, you're right, Jeff. <laughs> Make sure that this gets in the podcast. <laughs> this is this is exactly <laughs> what people tune in for. Yes. Uh, my desk is these upcycled uh, factory timbers that are they're not stained or polished. I just built a nice beer on them. Dope. That poor beer. I know. I don't know what I'm more angry about, the table or the beer. And how much of the beer did you lose? Uh, not very much. Okay, good. That's the, that's the important part. Yes. Beers were hurt in the making of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There we go. Let's rock. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 78, Grad School, March 19th, 2015. So, Brian... Do you think that engineers need an advanced degree to be successful in industry? No. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel, though. Well, I mean, it, I guess it, the more accurate answer, it depends on what you want to do. Uh -huh. um, but, uh, I mean, you could you could even say you don't even need an engineering degree to be successful in industry. But, you know, it doesn't hurt. Well, it certainly makes... Uh, access to the field a little easier. It's easier to get that first job, at least, if you've got the engineering degree. Agreed. It's also required if you're overseas in Europe. Is an engineer a protected term over there? I think a lot of places it's a protected term, isn't it? In the U.S., isn't it a protected term, I think? No, that's how we have janitorial engineers. Are, are you sure? I, I thought you had to be a PE in order to advertise your services as an engineer. Depends which state you're in. Ah. Yeah. Uh -huh. In in some states, you have if you have engineering or engineer in the title of your firm, you have to have a PE on staff. That, that's 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 vaguely what I remember too. Nobody asked but, me uh, for my business card then. Yes, and I believe Jeff, you can fill me in. We all operate under the industry exemption, except me. Except except for the PE here, yes. Except for the guy that works for the state. Yes, the uh, but the answer to that question, I don't know. Uh, from my point of view is there are some places that will exclude you from advanced research if you do not have a PhD. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I won't take away the rest of the thunder and argument in this podcast. I, I, I think that's becoming less and less so. 
but that's just my own personal experience. Right. And I'm sure that uh, all of us probably in school were uh, uh, familiar with with others that were in, in fields, say, science, you know, chemistry, biology, where an advanced degree was almost a necessity. You just couldn't go very far in your career without having a master's or a doctorate. Yeah, it's like that for some of the social sciences, too, I believe. Oh, sure. And and I suspect we're, you know, with the with the push for more STEM education and more STEM graduates, we're going to, you know, continue pushing that uh, region for engineering. I mean, it, it's uh, – if more and more people have an engineering degree, then it's going to be tougher and tougher to differentiate yourself. And one of the ways you can go about differentiating yourself is with an advanced degree. So, Oh, yeah. So in this particular topic mm-hmm. – I think we could start by announcing what we all have, because I believe I'm the only one here without an advanced degree. I think, so Jeff, you have a PhD? Yes, I do. Recently acquired, all shiny and new? Well, a couple years ago, but yeah, soon enough. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Jeff Shelton. I think, I think that's when we promoted you to Grand Vizier. That's what was holding you back, was no advanced degree. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was just Vizier and not Grand Vizier. Exactly, yes. But then you got the PhD, now you're Grand Vizier of the podcast. Ooh, that's, that's delightful. Yeah, you need those credentials. Was it a couple years ago? I thought it was just last year. Yeah, it was, uh, it was in the spring of 2013 that I finished up and finally finished my defense. Jeez. A happy day. <laughs> yes. I remember your stress levels. Have we really been doing it this long? We have. But we, we are actually coming up. Uh, see, we uh, Chris and I started this podcast at the beginning of April in 2012. Yeah. And so I'm not sure if this podcast will still go out in March, but the next one after that will be the beginning of our fourth year. Yeah. I'll wear a party hat during recording so everyone can tell I'm more upbeat. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Right. I'll be wearing my pretend party hat. <laughs> it will look just like yours, right? <laughs> all right. Well, now I'm gonna. Now before we before we get on. All right. This is gonna be evidence. Before we get on the next podcast to record, I'll I'll tweet a picture of my party hat. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, and I I should mention, uh, Brian. I don't think we really said specifically that the topic for today's podcast is to talk about grad school. Uh, we'd, we've talked in past episodes about going back for an MBA, but we never really talked about the pros and cons of going back to get a an advanced engineering degree. And so that's uh, that's what we'll talk about in this episode. Yes, sir. Right. So I I, I did go back and get a, uh, a doctorate after – this is like 20 years after I got my master's. So I'd gotten out uh, as an undergrad uh, after about a year in the workforce, decided I needed to go back and get my master's, did that, and then spent – 20 some years in, in industry before I went back and got the doctorate. So if you got to do, if you got to do the doctorate, that's not the, the most uh, direct path, but, it, but it is possible. It's uh, also a fairly common path. Is it not to wait that long? Yeah. How common is it for people to, um, go into industry for a while and then go back and get a PhD? Uh, if, if you're saying go back for five years, reasonably common, I, you know, most of the doctoral students I see are coming directly through. I mean, they're just charging through undergrad, master's, PhD, and they may have, you know, summer internships or some uh, co-op experience, but usually they're going straight through. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, I don't know, I, I, I'm making a rough guess. I, this is a, you know, a very off the cuff guess, but maybe 10, 15% of the students have 
you know, three, four, five, six years of work experience and decide to go back. Uh, I've not met anybody else who had 20 plus years of work experience and was silly enough to decide they wanted to go back and get a PhD. I think I'm actually working with a guy who's doing just that. Really? Yes, but it's not in engineering. I think he's going for biomedical or something along those lines. Okay. I'm not not entirely sure. <laughs> but I know he's going for some sort of PhD. And in, in my circles, and I don't know if it's just my own personal bias here, I've, I've interacted with quite a few people that have uh, spent a significant time in industry and went back, um, you know, on the order of 10 years. Okay. 10 to 20 years. Yeah, I mean, we, could, we can talk about this later, but, but it's really a, a major change in lifestyle. I mean, oh, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're giving up, if, at least in my case, I tried to work for a while and go to school at the full, you know, full time, and there was just no way to do it both and give them both the, their fair due. And all of a sudden, you know, the income goes away and now you're, you know, and you're, uh, whatever confidence you had developed as a, as an engineer in industry and you had your connections, you know, all of a sudden now you're in classes where you're uncertain of your skills because you haven't been in the, well, for me, you hadn't been in the classroom for 20 years, hadn't worked a calculus problem in 20 years and going, you know, was this a good decision? So it's a, it's not a uh, it's not a lifestyle change to be taken lightly. Now, what about the other two hosts here? Adam and Carmen both went right from undergrad to master's, correct? Uh, yeah, I graduated with my bachelor's in about uh, 2009, which um, anyone who graduated about that time remembers what the economy was like. Uh, and so I uh, I chose to hide out for a couple of years in school, hoping the economy would turn up. Um, and got a, you know, a master's in civil engineering. And it was particularly bad in your industry, was it not? Well, um, my industry is generally pretty related to construction, and the fact the housing market tanked didn't help matters, uh, um, at the very least. I mean, I, I can remember um, when I started my degree, most graduates, most seniors had multiple offers. And by the time I graduated, um, I was having a hard time finding interviews. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was certainly that way in the academic market. Um, even though I hadn't finished up at that time, I was certainly looking and, and, you know, trying to see what kind of jobs were available. And 2009, 2010, there were very, very few postings, uh, for new professorships. You know, they were, they just weren't hiring. Uh, you know, if I compare, if I compare what's, you know, what's online and what's posted this spring versus 2009 is just a world of difference. So you're absolutely right, Adam. That was a, that was a bad time for the U.S. economy. And, uh, it was, it was hard to find a job no matter what you were doing. Yeah. And for me, um, well, a master's degree in most states counts for, counts towards experience or equivalent of experience towards getting your PE. So I could either be unemployed or <laughs> continue to work towards that, uh, that license. Um, Right. And, and, and how, Adam, how long did it take you to get your master's? Uh, I was two years. Two year program. Okay. Yep. That's, that's pretty average. Yeah. Now, uh, and this is a, I guess a question for everyone too. When you did your master's, uh, I know it depends on location. There are multiple ways you can do it. Some are thesis based programs. Uh, I think the U of M has a plan C type system where it's just coursework. Um, I believe you're correct, but let me answer the first question before we get all 
ahead sure, of sure. ourselves. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna, I, I wanted you guys to all say if you guys did thesis work as well, or mm-hmm. but go ahead. Uh, yeah, so I graduated with my bachelor's and master's at the same time. Uh, RIT at the time was on the quarter system, and you know, you had to do co-op and grad work or co-op and undergrad work at the same time so it rolled it into five years instead of four and then they had they build it as you give up one co-op you leave in five years with your master's instead of your bachelor's so i was like yeah that sounds great but in the end it, it didn't quite work out that way and after i moved away to start my job down here in raleigh uh, i still had some master's work to finish up just just coursework or uh thesis work it turned into both, but originally it was just thesis work. I came down here just having to write my thesis, and then when my results didn't pan out, I said, oh, I would like to drop the thesis and go just to the grad paper, which was less strict, because when I left, I was under the impression that I had extra coursework, and all of a sudden, somehow, the four or five other classes I had did not count anymore. <laughs> Which I'm sure not under. I'm sure not. I don't understand the gymnastics that the counselor went through to explain it to me, and I still don't believe I buy it. But I then took an online course and got credit and finished up. More importantly, you paid for the credits. Oh yeah, that, that's what really mattered. <laughs> I could probably fill a whole hour just ranting about that whole situation, but I'll spare our listeners. Right, and we can we can have a positive discussion and you know a worthwhile one, not just some angry guy on the internet. Right. Well, and Brian, just to finish up, so when I did my, obviously there was a dissertation to do with the PhD, but with my master's program, uh, I think we mentioned in an early podcast uh, or in an early episode, we talked with Jim Tappel, who uh, was in the same smart product design program that I was at Stanford. And so that was, it didn't have a thesis per se, but there was a design project that you had to carry out over a uh, you know, the, uh, this, the academic year. And so it, it wasn't a thesis, but it was a fairly large, significant project that, that, uh, I had to finish up. And what about you? What about you, Adam? Um, well, the program I had, I could, or the program I was in, uh, I could do any one of three options, a coursework only, a, um, design paper or a thesis. And I chose to do the thesis because, uh, that was more a decision based on the, the funding, uh, an assistantship I was able to get. Um, and, and really, the, I mean, the big difference between that design paper and the, the thesis was the thesis was more general applic or general paper. Um, not necessarily a very, very specific application. And the design papers tended to be taking something, taking somebody else's thesis, whether it be at the university or not, and applying it to a specific situation and trying to produce some, some sort of tangible product. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, the, the assistantship I got, it worked real well into that thesis track. So I went the thesis track. Cool. Now, now Brian, you mentioned, uh, you, you do not have a graduate degree, but that does not mean you do not have graduate school experience. That is correct. So what, what is your tale? My tale was, uh, I was in industry for two years and had every intention to go back and get my PhD. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you always get to the P? <laughs> <laughs> Can you put one letter after your name? So I changed jobs and went to a hyper mega global corp, which 
had a big research group and uh, got into the uh, PhD program that I had desired. Um, was going to start part-time and uh, I don't know. I had a hard time meshing up uh, industry with and I'll leave that a little bit later. Or maybe I'll go into it now. Uh, I had a hard time meshing the desire, my personal desire to get a PhD, uh, and to achieve more academic excellence with, uh, what industry was telling me about the value of that PhD, at least at the place that I worked. You know, and it's, it was a big enough company. I don't think it's not unrepresentative of industry. Um, at one point, I even had a conversation with HR that started with an argument involving, I came here to get my PhD, you said you'd pay for it, now you're claiming you're not going to pay for it, and then being told, well, look, all upper management got their MBAs at night, and they think you should do the same. <laughs> um, so why did you just go the MBA route, not get your PhD? Yeah, and I, I, things had changed a little bit before I left. But, uh, um, I also noticed, so I, I went back and did the coursework anyways and kind of got a nice window into what going back full time would be both in terms of the income cut and the type of projects I'd be working on. And, uh, at least with what I was exposed to, I was underwhelmed and uh, I frankly came to the decision that I was working on much cooler things at my particular place in industry. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's entirely situational. I know there's a lot of people who weren't working on those kinds of projects, but I know I'm working on significantly more interesting things that I'm going to get a chance to work on uh, at the university. And, um, uh, I'm being paid a hell of a lot more. <laughs> right. And that's the key thing. Well, one of the key things is money. Yeah, and, and I had just been married at the time, and that was, you know, when you're single and you're able to basically throw around your, you know, lifestyle and income choices uh, with a voting party of one, um, it's a lot easier to make the decision to go back full-time and do uh, academic work for, you know, what's a, what's a good guess, Jeff, 18 to 30 grand a year? Your your uh, cost of what tuition or your lost opportunity costs or oh uh your uh stipend your stipend your stipend if you had a fully funded research assistantship a anecdotally that's about the range I've heard yeah your your it depends on the school and the you know the program that kind of stuff but yeah you're somewhere in that um. You know, you're going to probably get at least 25 to survive on, and you're probably in the 40s to mid-40s at kind of the upper end, I think. I mean, I'm not saying that if you don't go to the right school, you can't get a higher stipend, but, I mean, they're they're giving you something to live on, and they're paying your for your coursework, and that's, that's about all you're going to get. I would also imagine the places with higher stipends also have higher cost of living. Yeah, I'm trying to. There's I'm probably also higher expectations of you too with the higher stipend. Oh, I don't disagree. I mean, I, I think we can all agree that a research assistantship is basically meant to keep you slightly above the poverty line. 
<laughs> you know, you're throwing out these numbers like 30. Um, I think mine was about half that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's why I give a range. <laughs> yeah, he started at but, 18 and went to 30. Yeah, yeah, I, I still think mine was uh, was roughly half of that 30 number, maybe a little below <laughs> that. Uh, right. So it was 2009, though. Uh, anyways, yeah, the, well, yeah. <laughs> so my my general feeling coming out, of, like I started it, I was very excited, and it was very difficult to walk away from. And I I farted around in grad school for another couple of years, and I still have ambitions to return and complete that, maybe even change. You know, I've I've mentioned to Jeff offline and you know you guys offline that if I did it, I might go back and do physics. You know, instead of engineering, as maybe a late career complete change. But I I, I don't know that I would pursue it a, a PhD in engineering. Much to several friends' chagrin. <laughs> <laughs> but that's all right. Well, we'll talk about it as we get towards, you know, a little later in the, in this episode, but, you know, passion is one of the big deals, you know, it, um, it takes a lot, even if you go for a master's degree, it takes a certain amount of uh, planning and endurance and, and commitment. And if you don't have a passion for doing it, it's, it's oftentimes not worth the effort because it, it, it takes something out of you. So one question I'd like to ask Jeff is, Outside of teaching, um, mm-hmm. very clearly you probably need it. Definitely some masters, and you're probably not going to get a you know a full time tenure teaching job without a PhD. Right. Um, has the role of PhDs in industry maybe just anecdotally changed? Because a lot of the people who advised me to get a PhD, I think came from a different generation where it meant something entirely different. You know, these were people who worked at HP and HP, like, you know, outright went and pushed people to get their PhDs and, you know, would fly them on the corporate jet to Stanford on, you know, a daily basis in order for them to do part-time coursework and then fly them back to the HP campus to uh, continue working on what they were working that's a level of commitment that I have not seen in a corporate level. Um, yeah. And I think it depends a lot in the industry. So coming out of school and my industrial experience was pretty closely tied to manufacturing and quite honestly in manufacturing, we didn't have a lot of PhDs and not a lot of people with master's degrees. There are a lot of people that didn't have any engineering degrees. You know, if you could make the machine work, that was good enough. And, uh, but I, but later in my career, I worked with companies that did have research departments where they, they would have not many, usually one or two, uh, PhDs on staff who were there to sort of be doing the, you know, product development, the high end product development. So this wasn't trying to, uh, you know, improve efficiencies on, on the manufacturing, but this was, let's, let's change the configuration or, or, you know, change something significant about the way we're making our product. Um, and they were doing, essentially they were doing research or, you know, academic like testing. Um, they would be, uh, setting up experiments. They would, they would be doing everything, uh, to try new ideas that no one else had tried. In some cases, they were still publishing papers, which is a good sign if you're an academic. Uh, but 
they were sort of few and far between. And, and everything I've seen is that the, the big corporations, the, you know, it used to be the, you know, GE and Westinghouse and Bell Labs and, there were any number of, you know, fairly large industrial corporations that had a very substantial uh, research effort. And a few of those still remain, but a lot of those research efforts have gone away. They, the, the attitude has been, well, we can't, we can't show a direct, you know, correlation with profits in the next quarter. So let's just get rid of that expense. And a lot of that's been pushed back to the, to the universities. And it's, well, if, if, if we're going to have long-term uh, research and development, you know, the basic research is going to come out of the universities because industry isn't going to pay for it anymore. Yeah, that's kind of been my experience. I actually work with quite a few PhDs. I'm, I'm counting as you guys are talking, and there's four, four apps guys with PhDs. Yeah, and then uh, – but I mean, they're you know they're the apps guys, and everybody's got their own projects and stuff. They're all very smart, but it, it maybe we started at different salaries. But uh, you know, it's not required for my job. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I work with everybody from bachelors bachelors on up, and you know, yeah. sometimes the guy with the bachelor's degree is like, if I have a con- control system question, I go right to his office and ask him because he just has a knack for it and. You know, he's got his notebooks where he's derived all these crazy equations for how our modulators work. And, you know, then he's like, oh, it's, it's pretty simple. And then, you know, a couple nested nested feedback loops later and I'm, you know, I'm ready for a beer and a nap. And he's like, so you get it? And I was like, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I get that I need to come to your office again the next time I'm stuck. Yeah, yeah. I think out of my question, I got, you know, 5% of the way to getting the answer. But sure, I get it now. Yeah, but, but but I mean uh, that's but but that's why you go back for a PhD so that you have a chance to spend you know kind of block out a period of your life where you can dedicate yourself to coming up to speed on on these basic issues of you know math and science and mm-hmm. engineering art uh, so that you can do that. Yeah, and this guy actually only things, has his bachelor's, but uh, okay, but but well, nonetheless, what, yeah. whatever. Uh, but yes, the, that is the, the purpose of PhDs typically. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm thinking, you know, just to give another a different industry perspective, I think I've run across a handful of PhDs. I'm trying to think through everybody I know. Um, I think there's one that I know of that works the same, you know, general organization that I do, basically not a professor. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I really didn't know that she was a PhD until quite a while later. Um, I, you know, it's not like... It stood out as a person, a go-to, you know, oh, they've got this great theoretical background. They're, you know, they're the expert in this. Um, and most of the other PhDs I, I've um, run across have been professors at universities. Um, and usually there's a little bit of a, okay, yeah, that, that, that's good, but that doesn't really help us any, mm-hmm. you know, not, not a practical application to a lot of what they're coming up with. Yeah, you can unfortunately be too qualified if you have a PhD or too specific in your your knowledge, I guess. I would, I would also say that, you know, kind of going off Carbon's experience, um, 
my experience in industry uh, with those types of problems, uh, even fundamental device physics kind of problems. You know, I've, I've interacted with quite a few PhDs who are solving problems like that. I also interact with people who didn't have engineering degrees who were, you know, the Don mega at those kinds of problems. Um, you know, there's all sorts of avenues to get to that point. You know, it, it's a, I, I would say a PhD is probably a great way to get exposed to just point a great way to get exposed to those kinds of problems that, you know, if you simply went and started doing design testing somewhere, you probably wouldn't get exposed to, but it's not a guarantee. You know, it's not a guarantee for the person doing it. It's also not a guarantee for the company hiring the PhD that, that they'll be highly sophisticated at solving problems. Yeah. But remember that the, the point of the PhD from, from the research standpoint is you have to go out and find a plot of land or maybe a, maybe it's just a small square inch. Somewhere out there in the the realm of the universe, you have to find a square inch that you can claim as yours. Virgin ground. Yeah. See, w- well, it, it can be somewhat lightly tread or trod, but yeah, I mean, you, you, we all we all stand on the uh, the shoulders of the giants. But but in doing a PhD, the idea is that you're going to go out and you're going to spend a couple of years reading the literature, coming up to speed with what others have done in this basic area. Uh, maybe replicating some of their experiments, maybe uh, doing some mathematical models to bring yourself up to speed, writing a few conference papers just to show that you can write a conference paper. But in the end, you have to be writing, uh, doing research that is unique, that hasn't been done anywhere else. And you have to, you know, ideally you're presenting results that explain things in a way that hasn't been explained before. And you are carving out your little a bit of territory. And so, you know, in a PhD program, you're very, you're definitely going very deep and not very broad. And so you can't go very broad because you have to claim your territory and defend that territory as, as you know, research that's unique to you uh, and have an explanation for your results and what they mean. Um, and so if you've done that, then uh, your value, you know, supposedly to industry is that you can go out and find other problems that are new and unique, and you can once again come up with a solution. Uh, but it's not, you don't go buy, I mean, you don't go find a PhD and say, well, this person knows lots and lots about all kinds of engineering problems because that's not what a PhD proves. A PhD proves that you've got the gumption to stick with this, you know, this little bit of land and to cultivate it long enough to, uh, uh, to get something to grow. But what if you're not an agricultural engineer? sorry i I need to use a different analogy i guess i'm just being silly that's all right we encourage silly well so speaking of that before we sort of dig deep into uh you know sort of a point point by point evaluation of, of grad school uh we got some some email on our contact form this week and and we had a question carmen what was that question about Oh, putting our podcast up on uh, Stitcher for Android and I think iOS too. Do they have an iOS app? I think it's just Android. No, I guess they do have something for iOS as well. So, yeah, as we, we had a listener request this, and I was not aware of Stitcher. 
Now that may just be because I'm an old man, but we, I guess what we need to know is from our other listeners, is this worth doing or do we have enough Stitcher listeners that it's worth the, it's not a big deal, but it's a little extra work for us to put it up on Stitcher. I know that embedded FM and the amp hour are both over there. So what, what do you people think? Do you want us to move this uh, to Stitcher radio or are we doing just fine the way we're doing it right now? Yeah. Sound off uh, in the comments, get us on Twitter, use the contact form on the website and uh, let, let us know what works for you if that's something you guys want to see. I think we also set a record for longest introduction to an episode there. <laughs> <laughs> Clocking in at exactly halfway. We'll just call this the mid-show break. Go go stretch, Ooh. get a beer, some peanuts, come back, <laughs> listen to the second half. Oh, and, and so speaking of that, are, are any of you consuming a uh, – an adult beverage at this point in time? I'm drinking tea right now, but uh, I did have a couple beers before the podcast, so. Hmm. Yeah. Anything of note? Uh, let's see. I had an IPA from a brewery called River Rat in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a pretty solid IPA. And then I also had another IPA from Stone, the Enjoy by 314.15. So I kind of had to drink that one. Okay. And so, and so are IPAs uh, continuing with the same popularity that they have been? Or are they continuing to grow? Because they sort of exploded a couple years ago and everybody had an IPA. Uh, yeah, there's still, I think, the most popular, um, you know, beer out there. I, I remember seeing some numbers a week or two ago. And, you know, they are half-ish, I want to say, the craft beer market. Wow. Give or take, because it's it's the most popular style by far is the point I'm trying to make, whether or not that number is correct. Um, oh, okay. Second most popular style. You've got your light American lager. Oh, I said of the craft beer market. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, then you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, everybody's kind of thinking right now that the trend for big, gigantic hot bomb has kind of peaked and may start turning soon. Um Simply just because the price of hops is skyrocketed, you know, per pound. They've gone from, you know, say a dollar fifty to four fifty a pound. And that that's quite a big hit. Um so you just can't make a beer that hoppy uh as easily anymore. It's a lot of money, especially for startup breweries. And then another is, at least in America, the hop farms are contracted out. So your your big guys have bought hops years in advance and you just have to kind of get what's coming to you if you're starting a, a new brewery. So it, it, it should be cool because you can see a, an explosion of other styles that don't take as many hops. Right. Uh, you know, some forecast the return of the lager beer, you know, and, you know, more than just the token Pilsner here or there. <laughs> right. Yeah. It doesn't help that there's only a handful of major hop growing regions in the world that have very small acreages. And so uh, things like droughts and floods can really uh, mess up the hop market. <laughs> Agreed. I was actually just this weekend helping out at a hop farm here in North Carolina. I was harvesting some rhizomes. Weren't you? Didn't you do that last year? No, I harvested the actual hops then. This is the winter, so you do rhizomes. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, which are kind of like little buds on the roots of the plant. So it, cool. It, and and you can and and so what 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 do you get in return for your efforts? Uh, I got to work outside on a nice day, which was pretty fun. <laughs> I okay. got to learn more about the hop industry 
and there was a brewery pouring free samples, so that that works too. All right. Well, if that's all it takes, uh, you know, I, I'm sure I can find some like lawn mowing to do. <laughs> <laughs> hey, if you got the beer, I'll mow your lawn for you know a growler or something. As long as you don't have like five acres before I sign up for this. No, no, not yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but none of that has anything to do with grad school. So I'm sure listeners oh, yeah. have their beer by now. All right. They're settled in for part two. Back with their popcorn? Yes, yes. All right. Well, so we've got a list of, I can't remember, eight or nine pros and cons that have been, uh, it looks like nine, that have, we've we've taken from, sort of uh, cultivated from a, a web page that was put up by uh, Peterson's Guide to Graduate School, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, so I think in the end they had maybe 13 or 18 pros and a few less cons, whatever. Anyway, we cultivated that down to nine, nine pros and nine cons. And so we'll go through that and talk about the advantages and disadvantages of going to grad school. And so I suppose the number one reason, maybe, I don't know, maybe uh, the number one reason people go to grad school is for greater earning power, the money. You know, the, the, the averages show, let me see what I've, data I've got here. According to the January 2015 salary survey by the, by the National Association of Colleges and Employers, the average starting salary for engineers with a bachelor's degree is $63,000. Now that is a pretty good chunk of change coming out of school, even these days. Yeah, considering in school you're lucky if you get slightly above minimum wage <laughs> for most of your work. Not if you're Adam and you're rolling in that research assistantship job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I did pretty good making my uh, my master's. I got paid for mine too. It was more than the minimum wage job I would have had to work otherwise. Right, and it's worth pointing out that this varies considerably depending on what part of the country you're in and what industry you're in. Yeah, if you're living in Manhattan, sixty three thousand buys you a cardboard box. <laughs> Yeah, if, so you're, if you were willing to go and live in North Dakota for the past five years and drill oil, <laughs> that number is significantly higher. Right. So if you that's a a bachelor's degree, and so of the uh, of the two point eight million people aged twenty five to sixty four working full time year round as an engineer in the country, about one point seven million of them have just a bachelor's degree. So about 60%, as nearly as I can tell, about 60% of the engineers out there who are working full-time as engineers have a bachelor's degree. So more than half. Now, if you go back and you get your master's degree, about 900,000 of the 2.83 million working as engineers have a master's degree. That's about 32% of the engineers. And the mean starting pay for those is nearly $70,000, so about 10% higher. It's respectable. Not bad. And if you move on to a PhD, if you go back to school for those extra four, five, six years, then the starter, starting salary increases to $88,000, which is a pretty good, pretty good bump. But the the number of people in industry with a PhD is only 145,000 or about 5% of all practicing engineers in the United States. 
uh, so uh, many fewer, and that may be that may contribute to the higher salary is is uh, just the scarcity. Yes, and no- another thing to keep in mind is that bump is uh, just just starting salary too. You know, if you take six years to get your PhD and your buddy started at the same time working full time with just his bachelor's. He's he's going to come out ahead because he's no longer putting himself in debt, and he's got five or six years of making sixty thousand dollars while you are toiling away, not making that much. <laughs> exactly. And if you work at some place that has a reasonable employee development program, it's very unlikely that somebody you know if you if both people graduate with their bachelor's at the same time, and person A went to industry, person B got their PhD. Person A is not making $63,000 at the end of five to six years. They're yeah. probably making closer to seventy to 80000 Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and, and so as a, a means of comparison, comparing, you know, lifetime earnings, the uh, U.S. Census Bureau uh, does these calculations, and they say that those with a bachelor's degree can expect to earn $3.3 million in a lifetime. Uh, compared with 3.9 million for those with a master's degree and 4.2 million for those with a doctorate. So where's your swimming pool full of money there, Jeff? <laughs> or is that well, not one now, lump sum? <laughs> uh, it, yeah. So this is, uh, this is, you have to remember averages. That's true. And so, uh, one of the, one of the realities of academia is that you often start, uh, working with your students who, take job offers that have them making much more money than you do. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and that's the, why they got a B damn it. They didn't deserve that. A. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so truly I, I see starting salaries for, you know, for, for, uh, tenure track professorships, you know, at the low end, uh, 67, 68, a lot of them were in the, in the mid seventies, not a whole lot, very high into the eighties. Now, if you, you know, if you become a full professor, you could be making over a hundred thousand, a hundred five, you know, or, or you become a, a, a tenured professor, you can be making over a hundred thousand. And, and those that are full professors and have spent their time, you know, maybe making, I don't know, my guess is generally in the, you know, the one tens, maybe the one twenties. Now this doesn't ac- account for research money. If they, you know, if they're really good at research, they may be bringing in other research funds that can augment their income. But, that's one of the trade-offs. If you decide you want to go into academia, you either do it because you think you have something to share with other people like I did, or you just really love the research life. You love the independence of being able to pick what your next project is, as opposed to having a boss tell you what you're supposed to do. Boss is the NSF. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, uh, to a certain extent. Or DARPA or, yeah. I mean, and <laughs> the there's, dean. there's downsides to that potentially. Right. So that's all of the awesome reasons why, or at least some of the awesome one. reasons why you would want to get <laughs> that's, that's one, advanced one awesome reason. More money. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it isn't a guarantee either. No. As we've, as we've talked about, depending on the economy, that affects things quite a bit. Right. So moving on to con number one, uh, grad school can also, also be highly competitive. Um, there, you know, there's fewer spots available than undergrad. So not a lot of, not everybody can make it potentially, you know, you got to compete for seats and research positions, grant money, lab space, equipment, yada, yada. 
And, you know, there's department politics that come into play, too, as well. In some ways, it's harder than, you know, throwing your resume out there and hoping to hear back from a company. (laughs) I don't know know how it was in your guys' schools, but, yeah, I agree that there's definitely that there's everything's competition, everything's difficult, uh, very high stress and competitive. But at least where I was, um, there was also a degree of camaraderie because of it. Um, at the end of the day, no matter what happened, you know, you could either celebrate or commiserate together. Oh yeah. Uh, because everybody mm-hmm. else is in the exact same boat, you know, yeah. and, and you, you won this time, this other person lost, you know, Go out and grab a beer to celebrate your victory and commiserate their loss. Yes. Um, I I didn't see too much, like, I, fierce competition, I guess, is the word I would use in my grad program. But there, there was a sense of camaraderie where all the students knew they were in it together. And, you know, you'd, you'd swap stories and, you know, what have you uh, to help each other get through. There's there's no animosity. Yeah. And, Adam, this this beer you speak of. Tell me more about this. <laughs> Oops, I'm sorry. I'm, 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 um, we're devolving once again into the beer podcast instead of the Engineering Commons podcast. Yeah, turn this into a three-hour episode here. <laughs> right. Well, well, actually, tonight I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty lame. I don't have a beer tonight. Oh, well. Uh, sorry to hear that. Yeah. Sorry, me, me either. Uh, okay, so that's we've gone through one pro and one con. We've got eight more to go. We're going to have to hustle here. Okay, Let's so see. pro we don't have pro- to hit them all. <laughs> Quality over quantity. Yeah. All right. We could turn this into an eight-part podcast. Oh, that's right. Hey, wait. Yeah, we could do that and then not have to struggle to come up with something to do next episode. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And that's a plug. Anyone who has any episode ideas please free or guest ideas, please feel free to let us know. Yes, we've we've reached out to a few based on suggestions. All right. Well, let's let's move on to pro two of getting a graduate degree. You do it. Why? If it's not for the money, to advance your career. Yes, a grad degree can open up a wider array of career opportunities as well as allowing one to switch fields. So, for instance, Brian may decide he wants to go into physics. He can move from double E to physics by getting an advanced degree. And we've talked to a couple of people on this podcast who had say CS degrees and wanted to move into engineering and got a double E masters. So it's not something that a lot of engineering fields you need. It's not, there's a lot of industry where just a, just an undergrad degree is plenty to get you in the door and a master's doesn't do that much for you. But uh, I have some seen some um, rumblings that the, uh, some of these uh, engineering organizations are trying to make a, a master's degree part of earning your, a PE license. Have you heard the same thing, Adam? Uh, I have. Um, let's put it, um, my, my spin or what I've also heard. Um, so NSPE has somewhat historically been the, the biggest advocate for this. And NSPE is? Is uh, National Society of Professional Engineers. Right. Now, the thing I, I've run across several students have actually had this conversation this week. Um, NSPE really doesn't have any actual authority. Um, it's the individual state boards that actually set these requirements. And mm-hmm. it's my understanding that the majority of state boards have not latched on to this idea. And I had actually heard rumblings that NSPE was talking about removing that from uh, kind of what they call the model law, which is 
basically their idea of what the laws regarding professional engineers should be. Right. Um, now, at the same time, and you, know, my my opinion here is engineering is a very complex field, um, and this is why they're advocating for it. Is a bachelor's degree doesn't really prepare you to practice, and that extra mm-hmm. two years lets you actually get the credits you need to to sufficiently specialize and be worthwhile. But apparently, we've been doing fine for years, and the the states are. Uh, seem to be okay with the status quo. Right. Well, I know that the American Society of Civil Engineering has their programs called Raise the Bar, and you can actually go to raisethebarforengineering.org to find out more about their thinking on why engineers should need a master's degree. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Again, the number of PEs is fairly low. Obviously, in in your fields, Adam, that's higher, but you know the the majority of people that i know who say are working in you know manufacturing sites here in the midwest the majority of them don't have a pe because there's no need for them to have a pe mm-hmm. and that's perfectly reasonable certain fields have historically needed it and you're you're pretty much looking at like your hvac and your civil uh and then mm-hmm. some electrical doing some transmission stuff right um at least that's my understanding now, I also know there's been some discussion about uh, bachelor's degrees becoming somewhat diluted over the last years with more humanities requirements and less um, less engineering, so to speak, classes. Yeah, and that's one of the points that the Raise the Bar website makes is that it used to be that, you know, it'd be, be like 138 credit hours to get an engineering degree, and then it was 132, and now it's 128. And I know here in the state of Indiana, they're they're pushing to try to uh, take it all the way down to 120. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so does that mean to make an entry level engineer? Do we need to make a master's entry level? I, I don't know. Well, so that's one of the advantages of a, of a advanced degree is if you want to advance your career, you want to be seen as standing out from the crowd. A an advanced degree is or grad degree is one way to do that. But the downside of that is that if you stay in grad school, like Adam was trying to do, (laughs) it may unintentionally enable a professional student mindset. All of a sudden you realize, well, I kind of like school. I don't want to leave school. I've got, I've got people I know and bars I like to go to. And it may make it a little scary to venture out into the workplace. I mean, in reality, do do any of us not enjoy college? I mean, at least the lifestyle we were able to participate in. Oh, yeah. College was great. Yeah. But Um, I don't know if I miss it enough to not want to be, you know, having a house and all the perks of working, you know, in a quote unquote. Well, no, I'll just say industry job. I don't want to do a quote unquote real job. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> right. Money is nice. Yes. It is. Well, and so if uh, we'll put in the show notes a link to the Wikipedia entry on perpetual student, uh, but they have a couple of examples that uh, Johnny Lechner has been attending the University of Wisconsin Whitewater since 1994. He was scheduled to graduate in 2008 with multiple majors and minors, but continued into a 15th year of college 
Uh, and they also list Benjamin Bolger, who received his first four-year degree from the University of Michigan, claims to be the second most credentialed student in modern history with 10 master's degrees and a doctorate. That's pretty impressive. That's just showing off. His resume can totally not fit on one page. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, let me see. So what is the... Uh, if that's the downside, that's uh, con to pro three, a higher potential for future promotion. While obtaining a graduate degree does not necessarily always lead to a higher paying job right away, it can open up, open up opportunities for future promotions. So I must say that that having been said, I think that uh, my, my graduate degree from, I'm sorry, my undergrad degree from Purdue didn't hurt me. It's a well-known engineering college. Probably you know, maybe my grad degree from Stanford, since it was a, par- a fairly well-known school, probably helped me getting in the door a few times. But my MBA, I don't think, did anything to help my career. And I think after a few years in industry, my, you know, my master's degree really did did nothing for me. People were judging me by my track record, not what I'd done, you know, five or 10 years prior. So, but but Adam and Carmen, you guys both have graduate degrees do you think it's been helpful in in opening opening up career opportunities yeah you know i think go ahead oh, go ahead carmen okay i was gonna say i i think it might have helped me get my foot in the door um you know helping get those interviews mm-hmm. but you know now that i'm um in industry at least for me pe is way more important um and at this point nobody seems to really care that i have a master's Right. I'm kind of in the same uh, same situation. You know, it definitely helped, you know, stand out from the crowd when I was applying for jobs because I, I took a lot of uh, analog design grad courses, which is what I wanted to get into. And I did do analog design work for my thesis slash grad paper, um, but it was kind of not in the same field I ended up going into. So while it was a good experience and I learned a lot, um, it, it's I, I will say it has sort of faded, and right now it depends on, you know, what can I get done at work, what kind of experience do I have, and I think if I were to ever try to find another job, it would be, you know, a, a nice to see on the the resume, but not a, you know, someone would just say, okay, he has a master's degree, what did he do in the however many years he's been at Intercell? And to back up uh, Carmen's statement, I mean, both you and Adam are on your first jobs, right? Correct. Yes. So, um, I think I'm on my third ish. Um, <laughs> and I haven't interviewed at a lot of places. Uh, I shouldn't say a lot. After your first job, I have not had my education come up once in an interview. Mm-hmm. Unless you happen to cross paths with an alum or something. Yeah. It, it's, you know, it, as Jeff said, it's going to be all about what you've done. Yeah. You know, what are the projects you've worked on? What is the value you've created at your companies? It's the same, you know, it, same thing going into college, too. You know, all your high school teachers tell you, you know, this stuff matters, you know, yada, yada. People care. And as soon as you get the acceptance letter from college, does anyone really care anymore? <laughs> no. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, we, and we talked about this a little bit uh, when we talked to Mike Lockman about the MBA program is if you go back and get a – a master's degree. So you're working at a job and you get a master's degree and you come, you know, they they hand you the piece of paper. You come in the next day waving your piece of paper. Not really, but I mean, you know, with, with 
uh, understandable and and reasonable pride. You hang up your you know your uh, your degree on your wall in your office, and you say, "I've got my master's degree," and where's the pay raise and the greater opportunities? And usually, it doesn't happen. You know, the people around you go, "Well, you're the, just the same guy or gal <laughs> that we knew yesterday. What's different about you?" And you go, "Well, I finished my degree," and they go, "Well, la di da." Yeah, you know, our, who, our we don't special. care. Your work's <laughs> right. still due on Friday. Yeah, mm-hmm. and 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 so a lot of times it's the truth that you have to you have to change about the time you get you finish up with that degree you have to change jobs in order for somebody to pay you something for earning that degree, which is also why a lot of employers force you to work X number of years after you achieve yeah achieve that degree in order to pay off whatever they paid towards that degree. Yeah, exactly. They've it's caught typically on. about two years from what I've seen and heard about. Yeah. I guess I will add or will say, you know, the having a grad degree didn't or it did help, at least on paper, uh, me secure a promotion. But that was more um, the whole promotion was a problem because of bureaucratic process. It was just one more thing I could, you know, add on to the list of reasons I deserve this promotion, which everyone agreed I should have. Yeah. You know, um, so it, it, it's it can help with HR, I think. But. In practice, you know, hiring manager who's actually working in engineering, less important in my mind. Well, and if you're dealing with HR with respect to grad school, I have seen at least one place that had a very, had a spreadsheet-esque uh, pay scale for graduate degrees. They, I think they equated a master's degree with one year of experience and a PhD with two. Yep. Uh, that was not a – that's not common, but uh, I have seen it. Uh, that's exactly what they have where I work, um, and they don't even hide it. Well, and so I've, I've spoken to uh, a few people about, you know, the whole role of HR, and my understanding is these days HR people are not really doing as much of the recruiting as they are just trying to, you know, they're all the federal regulations and state regulations about employment, and so many of them are just managing the uh, – you know, the corporate policies. And so they're less, you know, somebody, somebody comes and says, Hey, we need to hire an engineer and they go fine, give me the keywords and let's publish something. And they may hire an outside recruiter or they may, you know, post it on one of the job boards, whatever. But these people are not, you know, they're not necessarily spending full time trying to do hiring and evaluating employees. A lot of their job as I understand it, and again, this is, you know, second, third, fourth hand, but a lot of their time is spent trying to manage all the, uh, the, the corporate policies that have to align with state and federal law. Yeah. It's just, we, the only time we ever interact with them, it's with respect to hiring and firing. So it's, we assume that's all they do. Right. Yeah. Well, as someone who has had to deal with HR on a few occasions, not ever in a bad way or very seldom in a bad way. Um, I, they seem to be more keep the supervisor out of troubles, their job, you know, the, the supervisor's doing their job, but they don't know all these rules. Um, right. So uh, that pro of a higher potential for fu- future promotion. Have we shot enough holes in that? I one? believe so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Our, yeah. Is, have we officially turned it into a con? I don't know. <laughs> So, so that semi-pro three, we can we can match up with the con three is that a grad degree can be stressful and emotionally exhausting. 
and if you complete a graduate degree, especially a PhD, you're going to have to have some emotional maturity. Uh, and I will say going through the PhD program, I mean, I, you know, I'd gone through undergrad, I'd gone through my master's, I'd had 20 years of industrial experience. Trying to finish up that PhD was emotionally just about the most arduous thing I've ever done. It just, there were days, it's like, I'm never going to get out of this. I'm stuck and I can't get out. I don't know what to do. I don't know who to turn to. I start paper after paper and no, none of them seem to take traction. Nobody seems to care. Uh, it was rough. There were days that looked bleak, so. I, I will agree with you, and I will also say that, you know, just given that where people are typically in their lives, uh, at least for me, you know, you have girlfriends as an undergrad and then spouses as, you know, girlfriends or boyfriends, I should say, as an undergrad and then spouses as a grad school student. It's not mm -hmm. uncommon. Mm -hmm. And that experience for me was totally different, you know. My girlfriend, I could say, go away for the week. I've got to study for a, you know, signals and systems test, and I really can't talk to anyone. That right. does not work with a spouse. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah. They want to talk. And it's not that the workplace can't be stressful either, but it's, you know, you, you and ideally you'd have set hours where, you know, when you leave at 5 o'clock, work stays at work and you can go home and do other things and, you know, you're getting compensated better. You have set vacation days and, you know, when you're a PhD, you're kind of on call whenever because you are that perpetual student and, you know, what, mm -hmm. what else do you have to be doing but your PhD? Sort of. You can fall into that mentality. Right. Yeah. I mean, I can remember uh, I had at least one long weekend, you know, three day span because I didn't have classes on Friday that I got 60 hours worth of work in mm -hmm. um, on my thesis. and Oh, I thought you were going to say an industry. No, no, no. <laughs> um, you know, and, <laughs> and I probably have a little bit of an atypical situation, but um, Friday afternoon, I go home and work stays at work as best I can. You know, maybe I have to go in on a Saturday. Did I remember to put the but, bridge out sign on the road before I left today? <laughs> <laughs> ah, the cones will stop them. There, there are exceptions. There are emergencies, but it's it's by far not the norm. Mm -hmm. You know, and my my Saturday and Sunday are, are my days. Yeah, and, and you know, say you get stuck on a dead end with your PhD, you know, you might try to push ahead because starting over could mean losing all your funding and, you know, another couple of years of your life, whereas in, you don't really have that in the, the industry because if something really doesn't pan out, it, you know, it might drag on for a little while longer, but eventually they're going to just cut their losses and kill that product and put you onto somewhere else. Yeah. The, the company's taking the hit, not you. Yes. Yeah. You don't have as much as emotional investment uh, tied up in your work project, typically. Yes. And this dovetails really well. I'm going to jump ahead to Con 5 because if you want to see a great example of what the stakes are, people, uh, the stakes that people take with their lives and their work, uh, watch the documentary. Um, uh, oh, it's the recent documentary about uh, particle physics and CERN and the Higgs boson. Oh, um, Particle Fever? Yes, yes, on Netflix. Good, good documentary. I just finished it not too long ago. Yes, and so you'll agree that one of the coolest parts of that documentary is they're following three different 
theoretical physicists who are all have competing ideas based on, you know, that depend on what the vet, what the value of the mass of the Higgs boson mm-hmm. is. And I won't tell you what happens because it would ruin the documentary, but it's, you're watching people who have spent tens of years, you know, and not all of them are going to be right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Or any of them. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're committing a good chunk of your life, especially with a PhD. And, you know, it's not uncommon for master's degrees to run over. You know, I alluded to earlier, you know, they said five years, you finished in the same time as your your bachelor's, and it took another year for me. So it, it was six years overall, but I, I was under the assumption it wouldn't be. And, you know, then things happen. <laughs> and while I will say that companies are typically very short-sighted, they typically won't let you go out on a limb for five to ten years and <laughs> – blow a ton of uh, capital on <laughs> something that isn't going to get to market. No, no. There's very few t- chances that's going to happen. Yeah, and I'm, I'm looking at an article that's titled Dealing with PhD Stress the Right Way, Advice from Three PhD Graduates. Is step one alcohol? <laughs> uh, no, but they list some of the common emotions that one has going uh, during a PhD. Uh, constantly feeling you can't work hard enough feeling overwhelmed by the workload, feeling like you're not working to your true ability and the inability to focus, feeling like nothing you do has any impact and you have no control, feeling like even easy things have become difficult, a constant fear of failure, feeling like you don't belong in the PhD program and that you will be found out, and on top of all that, just physical and mental exhaustion. Is that pro four? <laughs> no, pro four and pro five are, are pretty similar, you know, standing out, becoming a smaller, you know, more elite segment of the population because of your higher degree and, you know, getting the community or possibly international recognition for your work, um, especially if you break some new ground in a, an area that, you know, was kind of stagnated. But there is no, uh, I mean, if you want to be sort of internationally known, you sort of associate that with the Nobel Prize, but I don't think there's any Nobel Prize in engineering. Well, some physicists have gotten it, uh, or I should say some engineers have gotten it for phys- physics. I mean, arguably the, uh, the blue, LED. blue LED was as much an, yeah, an engineering challenge as it was a physics challenge. Right. I believe there is now a Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering in England, so maybe that's as close as we get these days. Possibly. <laughs> There's the Hackaday Prize. <laughs> well, we know more about that, yeah. But I, I don't think that's quite on the level of the uh, Nobel Prize. Maybe some of our uh, listeners from the, uh, the United Kingdom can tell us a little more about the Queen Elizabeth Prize and whether that's as, as big a deal as it uh, it appears to be. The Going Public Prize can be uh, very lucrative as well. <laughs> you mean in Silicon Valley? Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. So what's uh, what's con for to go with this pro four of getting international recognition? Oof, the actual writing of the thesis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pain in my butt. Yeah. And, and there's, uh, there's even the term for it. The students who have gotten all their coursework done but can't seem to finish up their dissertation, they're known as all but dissertation. There's even a Wikipedia entry for this. I've never heard of this, but I know people like mm-hmm. this. Yeah, I've never heard that uh, term before, but it, it applies, definitely. Mm-hmm. You're, you're done, but – and I was there. I mean, I 
I had lots of starts on papers and I just could not seem to get, you know, a, 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 a combination that, that in, enjoyed enough traction to, to get me over the hump. Now, part of my problem was I was trying to, uh, emerge from, from control theory into human behavior and the, the, languages and the terminology and the principal concepts were different between the two. And so I would talk to the human motion people and they would be confused by my engineering uh, terminology and ideas. And I talked to the engineering people and they would be confused by my human motion terminology and ideas. So it, it can be a struggle. Yeah. And, and typically, you, you know, you're at the thesis after the research is done. So it's not the exciting part. You've, you've made your discovery or not made your discovery and it's it's that last thing you can see the end and it you know that that might have something to do with it cuz i doubt anybody's smart and writing it as they go is like you should <laughs> <laughs> right. nobody, nobody does that well and you don't know what to write until you've done it and and, yeah, and know what happened exactly yeah and know what was important yeah and then you know there's there's no reason writing you know this is how i set up my experiment if you know once the experiment's done you go oh that was a pile of crap i got to start over and I'll, I'll point this out. This is a key difference in doing advanced studies. Well, either whether you're in a master's degree in writing a thesis or you're doing your doctorate and, and a dissertation. Again, the thesis is uh, technically the thesis is the idea. The dissertation is the document. But for whatever reason, it's typically referred to as a master's thesis and the doctoral dissertation, which presents its idea, which is the thesis. I don't know. Why, but that's <laughs> Semantics. That was that was someone's uh, you know <laughs> but, English English PhD, <laughs> right? But but the, but but the key idea is that if you've gone to undergrad, basically you've done deductive reasoning where they give you a problem, they give you a set of conditions, and you come up with the one right answer or one of a limited number of answers. When you're doing graduate work, you're doing research, you are supposed to be uncovering answers that no one has ever done before. And so you're in an area where the professor may not be – the professor doesn't know what the answer is. If you're doing really groundbreaking research, along with you, uh, your advisor is is new to the field because you're in a new field. And after a while, you are to be the expert. That's the whole That's the whole process of trying to get your PhD is you are becoming the expert in this area. Uh, so I, I think that uh, for a lot of people that are new to grad school and they go in and think, well – It'll be just like undergrad and you just do your work and get your answers and you get your stamp and you move on. Uh, it's not that way. And especially if you're doing PhD work, you are going to have to go out there and, and you have to become the person that has the answers and develops the answers can explain why they are the right answers. And that's, that's definitely a different, a different mode of thinking. Well, and on top to having to come up with all this becoming the expert, um, and we've talked to a couple of authors, it's writing a book which is a challenge in and of itself. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Especially PhDs, you know, masters, depending on your research is, is still long, but yeah, the PhD is essentially, you know, you start with chapter one <laughs> and there's appendices <laughs> and, you know, all sorts of good stuff you have to throw in. When you're writing, you actually don't start with chapter one. The chapter one's the last thing you do. <laughs> well, yes, but that's, you know what I meant. <laughs> I knew what you meant. Right. All right. Well, so if writing a thesis is a downside, what's a what's an upside? What's Pro Five? Uh, we had talked about Pro Five. We rolled it into Pro Four, standing out and you know gaining recognition. Oh, I thought I thought uh, Brian was talking about Con Five, where it could take two to seven years of yes. your life and 
You have no idea whether, whether because you're doing fresh research, you never know when you're going to land upon the right, you know, the breakthrough. Yes, yes. Yeah, they, 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 your thesis typically can't be a negative result. Is that right? Yes. So everybody says, you know, failures are the important part, but the reality is no one wants to publish a paper with negative results. <laughs> yes, I ran this experiment for five years. None of these it, answers work. Yes. <laughs> it don't work. So you just need to make it a way that you're proving that these are wrong answers. Well, you know, sometimes, I mean, if you're doing a mathematical proof, sometimes that's useful. You can rule out a whole, you know, a range of mathematical results that otherwise people would have to cover. That can, that can be useful. But if you're doing any type of application, you're trying to show a new, you know, a, a, a new physical phenomenon or a new manufacturing method or a new interaction between components, uh, Saying, well, I tried, I tried these 17 different ways and none of them worked. That's usually not a good way to get a, pu a paper published. Yeah, probably. Unless it's ruling out the luminous ether. <laughs> <laughs> Have they ruled that out? But one, of, one of the pros of, you know, going to grad school is working on uh, advanced projects. You know, you, uh, if you catch the right wave, you could be at the forefront of technology and pushing, you know, real barriers. Or pushing real boundaries is what I meant to say. Yeah, and and so for somebody who's not going just to get the piece of paper, but they want—I mean, they're excited. They like working on nifty things, right? Hey, doing doing a master's degree or a PhD, and if you catch the right wave, that is, you know, the, the industry is moving to computer graphics, and you're on the leading edge of the computer graphics. And we talked to—I believe it was uh, uh, Dean Bertolini, Gary Bertolini who was developing computer graphics about the time, you know, it exploded. Or if you're doing, you know, I don't know, some sort of advanced printing or you're doing, nu you know, uh, nuclear fission in a way when all of a sudden cold f fusion becomes uh, available. I don't know what it is, but if, if you're, if you are lucky enough to catch the right wave, boy, this could, it can just absolutely change your career because you are the person you know, you're one of a handful of people in the world that know how to do this thing, and everybody wants it. Um, and so that it's a lot of it's hard work, but it, there's a certain amount of luck in there as well, being in the right place at the right time. A great example of that would be, you know, the people who left Shockley and founded Fairchild and then Intel. Right. I, I mean, th th those are all those were all people who were, you know, is it fair to say academics? Sure. Who went into an industry that had previously not existed. Yep. Became, they changed the world. They became moguls. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if catching the right wave is the pro, the con to that is that there's extra cost of education. And graduate school can be expensive. And beyond the cost of actually the tuition and the books and that kind of stuff is the opportunity cost. You know, if you already have a job that's paying you – you know, 40, 50, 60, 70 grand a year, you're going to give that up for two years or six years. That, that's, that's quite a cost. So something to keep in mind. Yes. But uh, another pro is uh, you, can, you can find teaching opportunities. You know, not everybody's suited to teaching, but if you're going to get a PhD, typically you have to do a little teaching to uh, earn your stipend and get your education paid for. So you find out if you're good at it and, you know, could open up a new career path for you. Um, and, you know, as Jeff's mentioned, if you get a, a tenure position at a college or university, 
you know, there's a, a comfortable salary. It's not lucrative, but you're not going to be, uh, you know, on the street either. <laughs> and you could head up your own lab and, you know, kind of mold the future. Would it be fair to say that um, entry level for engineering teaching positions, engineering instructors, is at very least a master's, if not a PhD? Yes. Yeah. So you can you can teach in some schools. You can teach engineering courses with a master's degree. Yes, I had a few one or two professors that had only a only a master's. Um, yeah, it, it, it's changed somewhat since the U.S. News and World Report rankings came out, and they you get dinged for not having all your instructors have PhDs, and so because of that, in recent years, the emphasis has been you must have a PhD to teach. You know, if you're if you're at a major university, yeah, they almost always want you to have a PhD to teach an engineering course, um, even if it's you know it's not you know, that highly technical, but it's more application even. Uh, but there are some, still some places where you can, you can do some teaching with a master's degree. Yeah. It, you can do a guest course or whatever, you know, that's taught every other year, or what have you. Yeah. Um, so if, if you're going to give back, you know, it's, it's an option to you. Yeah. Right. And, and I think some schools, at least the one I went to, some of the in, lower level stuff like statics uh, are sometimes taught by master's um, graduates. Sometimes that's people going for their PhD, but um, especially if you want to teach them the advanced engineering curriculum, you're probably looking for a PhD. It, yeah. And, and, and again, it depends on what, what you're looking to do with it. So if you're going to a, a research one university where, you know, they're emphasizing research, I mean, teaching is a duty, but the emphasis is on how many research dollars are you pulling in and what kind of, you know, are you doing, you know, leading edge bleeding edge research. Uh, if you go to a teaching university and there's a number of great teaching universities in this country, teach, uh, engineering schools, then the emphasis is less on research, uh, and more on the teaching. And, and I suspect that the emphasis there is probably a little less on, you know, do you have a, a PhD? Uh, although many of them, again, because they, they want to, uh, appear well in the PH, in the U S news and world report rankings insist that all their professors have PhDs. But in order to keep it a pro, you have the option available to you. Whereas if you just have your your bachelor's degree, um, you know it's you're fighting a much much more uphill battle. Yeah, it's much almost deeper. impossible. To, it's almost impossible to teach an engineering course with just a bachelor's degree. Agreed. Uh, so, con number seven we've mentioned a few times. You know, there's no guarantee of the higher salary bump. Um, you know, the economy plays into it. The area you specialized in. You know, where you're willing to relocate, all sorts of stuff. Um, so you, you kind of got to want it before you just go in it to it for the money. It, yeah. Again, I think it's, it's a matter of managing your expectations. And some people think that I went and I got my graduate degree. Where's the money? And it, a lot of it depends on what, what you have to offer. And so if you've yeah. got your graduate degree in some esoteric, portion of the engineering field that nobody really in industry is willing to pay for. Hopefully you went for your own self-enhancement enjoyment because uh, the fact that you've got this degree in esoteric engineering 101 doesn't, is not going to mean much to them. Uh, on the other hand, these days, if you have a, you know, if you can do anything with software, it looks like software engineering is just growing leaps and bounds and they, they don't care whether you have an advanced degree. 
Well, the next pro on our list is access to advanced equipment and tools. Um, and actually, yeah, in a grad program, you can get access to a lot of the labs that other people wouldn't have access to and uh, equipment as well as uh, expertise um, in, you know, things like uh, supercomputers and uh, cutting edge instrumentation. Yeah, plus you're also just surrounded by a ton of smart people in the university. Not that everybody who works in the industry is dumb, but, you know, you got people whose lives are dedicated to, you know, this project and, you know, that area of study. And, you know, it's it's a wealth of information you can learn from, you can tap into. Well, so to the, the downsides, I suppose, is that uh, you, can, you can go – uh, play with the play with the equipment. Uh, if it gives you an advantage in industry, it gives you the the knowledge of the tools, and that's great. But if it's not uh, knowledge that industry is really wanting to to have, then you've got another problem, and that is that when you go in and you sit down for the interview, they're going to go, "This person is too qualified. We don't need somebody with a PhD. We don't need somebody with a master's degree. Why should we have to pay extra for those skills?" And you might find yourself out of a job or out of, you know, out of the running for a, a potential opening simply because you have too many degrees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there's also a degree of fear that this person is going to get bored of this position and leave. And so why would we spend the money to hire and, and get them broken in if we're going to have to do it in, in two years when they finally get a, what they want? Right. Right. And there's a, there's a certain fear from, when you bring in somebody who has a lot of schooling and you're trying to, so my perception is that those who are managing PhDs, if they don't themselves have a PhD, they they can get intimidated by that. Quite honestly, there's not that much to be intimidated by. Um, But, but it's the thinking that's, but you know, if, if they're uncertain about their, you know, their technical calls and they've got somebody here who might be looking over their shoulder or, you know, calling them to task for some of their decisions. My experience has been that those who aren't, you know, confident managers may shy away from hiring those with advanced degrees just because they're worried about being shown up at some point. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that it's human nature and it happens from time to time. Yeah, absolutely. So that brings us to pro and con nine. (laughs) <laughs> because you want to and because you don't want to. <laughs> yeah. So I, I mentioned earlier the pro about going to grad school is it's available and it allows you to pursue an academic challenge and you want to learn more about a subject and you want to understand more about the world and you want to think in a different way and you want to mingle with people who think in that way and you want to uh, – expand your horizons and challenge yourself and see if you can, you can uh, make something different happen in the world, change the world. An advanced degree is a great way to start down that path. It's a, it is a challenge, but the, the con, the reason you shouldn't do it because you don't want to. And there are a lot of opportunities that don't require an engineering degree or an advanced engineering degree. If you don't want to do it, don't do it. Yeah. Don't don't force yourself in. Right. So we've gone through pros one through nine. I don't know. We could we've, probably go all the way to 100 <laughs> if we wanted to. <laughs> we could. I, I don't think uh, – so I remember when we did the Reddit questions, we kept coming with, it depends. 
It depends. And I think this answer is, you know, should you go to graduate school? Well, it depends. But I would say be very specific about what you expect to get out of it. Don't go to grad school just because you, it seems to be the right thing to do it. All, all your friends are doing it or my family would like it if I did it. Yeah. Think it, think it through. Have a, have a plan. Yeah. It's really an individual decision based on your situation, what you want to do and where you want to go. Right. So, uh, kind of just to wrap up, uh, I've got a question for, for you guys and I'll answer it myself as well. Um, are you, you glad you did grad school or, um, and then would you do it again if you got to make the decision all over again? I'll start. Uh, I am glad I went to grad school, uh, getting exposed to some of the topics I would not have in undergrad, uh, has proved to be very beneficial. I would do it again if I could, uh, but there are a few things I would definitely have a better plan than I did. So I would change a few things about how I did it. But overall, yes, I I think it was a net benefit for me. Um, I could I could have finished a year quicker though if I know what I know now and started over <laughs> through some other options I didn't know were available to me at the time. <laughs> yeah, and I went through um, uh, the master's program that I went through. I was happy I went through it, but quite honestly, because I was paying my own way and uh, it wasn't cheap at Stanford, I could only afford to stay there a year. And so it took me a year to submit a quarter to, to finish up, but I basically had to go through as quickly as I could. And I didn't feel like I really absorbed all the information and all the experiences and met with all the people that I wanted to meet out there. I mean, that just my goodness, what a rich environment of, of interesting ideas and people and, and engineering applications. And for years after that, I would have, I would, you know, sort of have weird dreams where I'd wake up and feel like I, I hadn't, I hadn't done enough to make use of that time I had there. And I would regret that, that I hadn't, uh, worked harder while I was there and, and absorb more of it. And it, it wasn't that I didn't work hard. It just, it was, it, it was just it, over in a flash that, that year just flew by, um, and I wish I'd I'd been able to absorb more of it. Now, strangely enough, once I started with more recently with the PhD program, I, w- I would have these weird dreams, like I said, of regret. I don't know. Once, uh, you know, they're more frequent when I was younger, but still, about once a year, I would have these strange dreams. When I started the PhD program this time around, all those dreams went away. I quit having those weird dreams of regret. So maybe it's. You know, I had a second chance to make up for it and apply myself more rigorously uh, the second time through. Uh, and I can't say that I the PhD was longer than I expected it to be. Uh, I took several wrong turns and, and you know, like I said, it, it wasn't like I wasn't working hard, but I just couldn't find the right combination of ideas to really gain traction and, and to gain acceptance because basically not only do you have to prove to yourself that you've got a great idea, but now you have to turn around and, and prove that to the other researchers and scholars in the area that you're dealing with. And that was, that was very tough. It changed my life. I mean, it it took me out of a, a very manufacturing based environment and I wanted to teach. So this is where I wanted to be, but it put me in a very academic environment. And so my manufacturing background mattered pretty much not at all. And I was having to, you know, cope and defend myself using my mathematical skills and my reasoning skills that I hadn't used like this in in twenty some years. So, 
teaching was what I wanted to do, and it's now given me the opportunity to do that. And for that, I'm very happy. And I can't say that I, I regret it. I'm, I'm happy with having finished it. I will just say that it, it, it changed me. It changed my life. And so I, I can't at this point imagine my, you know, my, my career path being different, but it certainly would have been very different if I'd not gone back for a PhD. Yeah. Well, to answer my own question, um, you know, it, grad school was, was tough and, you know, I, I definitely had my specific decision reasons for making that decision. Um, I do think I learned a lot more. Actually, I think I earned, learned more that I actually use on my day to day job in grad school than I did in undergrad, um, which isn't actually all that much really. Um, but I, I did pick up some things that they didn't even teach, even think about teaching undergrads about statistics that, um, it, it helps me every day. Um, you know, if you'd asked me a couple of years ago, I probably would have said no, but now, yeah, I'm glad I went to grad school. Um, it, you know, even, even though I graduated a little bit earlier than, uh, than the economic, uh, uh, downturn really had picked up, um, you know, I, I still, I, I think I made the right decision at the time, and um, I'm glad I did. Fantastic. Well, I'm uh, uh, while you were sharing that, I was quickly going back and wondering if I had gotten anywhere close to the right stipend values for Purdue grad students. And so uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at for the, uh, the School of Civil Engineering at Purdue. That just happened to be the first one that came up, but it, it indicates that uh, their grad students get assistant ships that remit tuition, so tuition's for, paid for, and pay a stipend of seventeen hundred to eighteen fifty a month. So eighteen fifty times twelve is twenty two two hundred. So closer to closer to the numbers that Adam was speaking of than maybe the forty I was asserting. Dreaming up, <laughs> dreaming up, yeah. Oh, it's forty if you include tuition. Well, if you go and do postdoc or something, then you start getting monies that, that are in that 40 to 60 range. But. And, yeah. you know, maybe to be fair, um, looking at the civil engineering salaries and wages, um, admittedly, civil engineers are or tend to be at the lower end of the, the engineering scale. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it's still in that right, that range. It's, it's not what you'd be making in industry though. Right. Thank goodness. All right. Well, we seem to be running a little long here, guys. Should we wrap it up? I think we better. Yes. <laughs> well, but it's been a good conversation. We normally we normally we have a guest and and the guest gets to do most of the speaking and this evening we'd have the we've had the opportunity to uh to share a little bit. So I think that's been good. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I enjoyed this. All right. Well, I guess that uh, finishes up episode number 78, which by the way, if you're keeping track, 26 we do it every 2 weeks, so that's 26 in a year. So that would indicate that'd be the end of our year three. So I think that, like I indicated at the beginning of the episode, this will uh, come out in March and be our last episode uh, in our third year. And our next episode will start our fourth year of the Engineering Commons. So, and I'll bring the party hats. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later, guys. All right. Take care. Bye, Bye now. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.